This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galeed Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Galid, it's episode four. Yay, I love episode four. I am so excited because we just upgraded our SoundCloud account, and this gives us access to a whole new world of statistics, and we have learned that we have a lot of international listenership, which is super cool. Yes, and also a whole new world of page refreshing for me. (laughs) (laughs) So we wanted to shout out some of our international listeners, some of the countries that people are tuning in to Double Read Dish from. So um, some of our heavy hitters, shout out to Canada, our neighbors in the north. Um, Shout out to Australia, our third. What's up, Australia? Yes, third most popular country, Australia, listening to us. Um, And then rounding out the top four, the United Kingdom. So um, that's super cool. Um, Other noteworthy listenership from um, Brazil, France, Germany, the Netherlands, man, all over Mexico, Israel, so, uh, oh, and Bulgaria, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. It, it, we appreciate it so, so much. Um, so this episode, we said we are going to disclose our most embarrassing musical moments, and I don't know why we decided to do this. But I've been it... dreading this <laughs> since the moment you suggested it. I guess I thought it would be a fun way to bond with our listeners. I don't know. Maybe we'll live to regret this. But <laughs> um, in the interest of solidarity, we did a call on all our social media platforms for embarrassing moments. And we actually got some responses. You have one there for us to share? Mm-hmm. I have a really good one. Um, this is from an oboe player who listens to our podcast and this listener um you know all of us oboe players know that the tuning a is the most nerve-wracking thing in orchestra rehearsal and concerts because everybody's listening to you and it's your own little solo uh every single time and you have to do it more than one time um and this listener for their embarrassing moment accidentally had their fingers on one in three instead of one in two (laughs) to give the a (laughs) 
<laughs> and they said, you can just imagine what my face looked like after that sound happened. And to this listener, I relate to you and I am so sorry, but I bet it was really funny and hopefully everyone was laughing with you. <laughs> I can only imagine the amount of scary tuning A stories that we could get our hands on. I would bet almost everyone has one. I couldn't imagine having to give a tuning A. No, thank you. <laughs> the mental chatter in my head goes down by 100% after I give the tuning A. It's the most <laughs> stressful thing I ever have to do. <laughs> do you have an embarrassing moment to share, Galit? Uh, yes, my palms are sweating. I have two <laughs> embarrassing moments. And uh, the first one, we'll go back in chronological order. The first one uh, happened um, when I was a student. Uh, I was assigned to play English horn on Scheherazade, which was really, really great, right? It's a really awesome English horn part, but there's a lot of time where you're not doing anything. You're tacit for a couple of movements before you actually get to play. Um, so I was sitting there in the concert. Uh, we were on uh, we were on stage, and of course there are risers, and I'm sitting there, you know, kind of playing with my reed, picking it up, putting it back down because I'm nervous, and I go to pick it up, and I dropped it <gasps> under the riser. No. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in the concert the movement before I have to play the solo and my read is on the stage floor under the riser did you have more than one? Oh, I don't remember but it didn't even occur to me to look for another read so what I did was slowly slide down my chair oh my god <laughs> I could bend down and pick up my reed off of the floor. And my good friend was sitting next to me playing second oboe. And he was shaking his head. <laughs> <laughs> had his hands on his head. Like, you couldn't just leave it there. Oh. You couldn't just leave it on the stand. You had to play with it. Look what you did. And the conductor was really not pleased. And I, that was really embarrassing. So that's number one. Well, we should tell the listeners that we did not um, share with each other our embarrassing moments ahead of time. So this is um, true <laughs> responses from us. This is fun. I'm happy we're doing this now. Wait until it's your turn, Jackie. Oh, yes. So the second one uh, happened, I don't want to say it happened to me because I did it, but it was in a professional audition for an actual orchestra. Um, I was playing the excerpts in the audition in the first round, and um, I was thinking the whole time, like, oh, wow, this is going pretty well. Like, I'm really impressed with myself. I didn't think that I was going to play this well today. You know, this is, wow, this is great. And I got myself so distracted. I was playing the fast La Scala solo. And I get to the last scale, which, as all oboists know, ends on a low C. And I played A C sharp. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was in a church. So it reverberated <laughs> across this big, beautiful church. 
And there was this deafening silence and I couldn't even breathe. And then the committee goes, thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. It was terrible. I did it to myself, you know, just like pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jackie, this was enough torture. Tell me your embarrassing moment. Okay, I actually can't believe I'm going to create a written record of this embarrassing moment, but here we go. So mine is also from my student days, and I was fortunate enough to be invited to play in a master class at IDRS. And I'm going to be intentionally vague, but this um, masterclass was for an extremely prominent bassoonist playing an extremely standard piece. Oh my God. Um, So, um, and I I knew this piece really well. I actually considered it one of my stronger pieces. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to get this opportunity. Hooray. Awesome. And so I was so excited. I of course went and bought a new outfit and I got new slacks. I got a brand new blouse. Oh, and I got a cardigan and I tried it on in the dressing room. Perfect. We're good to go. Um, And then this conference was in a location that was very hot. And as we know, the IDRS conference happens during the summer. And so um, I was like, man, I didn't realize how hot it would be out here. My outfit doesn't work. It's pants and a cardigan. But um, it's what I bought. So I'll just put it on right before the master class. Um, So I go, I put it on, and I walk over to the place. And... um, So I get there and the venue is a little bit too small for the prominence of this individual. It's more of a um, glorified classroom than Mm -hmm. um, a hall. And so um, I'm I'm there, I'm warming up and people are starting to file in and then more people file in and more people file in and and the classroom's getting really full. And um, in my student days, especially, I mean, IDRS is always a hard venue to play at. I think oh, you know totally. you're, you're playing for other experts, but especially as there's a student, so much pressure, right? And I'd never experienced it before. I was still very much a student, and I started getting these wheels spinning, going. Every one of these people is a bassoonist, and every one of these people knows every note of the piece that you are about to play. Oh my God! And so I start getting nervous and. I get nerves, of course, we all do, and mine tend to be a little bit like butterflies in the chest and maybe some finger shaking. And these nerves, my leg started swaying. My right leg, especially my knee, started swaying. Like I was doing an Elvis impersonation or something. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, my gosh, because I'd never experienced my body doing that when it was nervous before. These were like ultimate nerves. (laughs) And so I was like, my knee, my knee. What is my knee doing? I Okay, (laughs) people are going to see the knee. And I start getting really self-conscious about the knee. So I kind of excused myself to try to calm myself down. And I look down, and my button up top, two of the buttons have come undone. And when I stand, I wear um, a sling strap, not a neck Mm -hmm. strap. And it was something about the combination of shirt and sling that did not work. And of course, idiot me did not try on the outfit with the bassoon on and like um, play through the thing to make sure the outfit worked. Oh, no. Um, So I'm like, okay, okay, just rebutton it. It'll be fine. No. It was not fine. Every time I rebuttoned it, the shirt came undone. So here I am 
um, very exposed um, <laughs> on my chest region and leg swaying like there is something wrong with me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I try to find a safety pin. No one has a safety pin. So I don't know how I do it, but I take both sides of the shirt and I tie them around the sling strap in a knot. So I look like I don't even know what I looked like. People are probably so confused. Um, but of course, shirts are not made to be tied around straps. And so it kept coming undone. And I kept having to like, retie it as I was like, pretending to listen to this person. Um, you know, and I played okay, given the well, circumstances. How could you possibly, how could you possibly play really well when all you can think about is exposing yourself to the entire audience? It was the exposing myself, the knee, the nerves about who was listening. Oh, and the other thing I forgot is that in the process of the room filling up, they ran out of chairs. And so they started putting chairs to the side of us and then in the back of us. So we were literally surrounded on all sides by spectators. And I was just a complete mess. Um, You know, so the moral of the story here is try on your outfits (laughs) with having played your instrument with them go through your whole thing you're intending to play them uh with it on which probably everyone listening is like yeah duh of course we all do that (laughs) um but I did not and um (laughs) yes um you know try to focus on on the music and the task at hand more than the number of people staring at you who already know it and um maybe your leg won't shake like <laughs> Elvis. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's mine. EGADs. I'm hoping that people are not like trying to figure out who I am now. And um, <laughs> I, I remember a strange girl at IDRS 12 years ago. Hmm. <laughs> oh, what an innovative uh, uh, sling idea. <laughs> oh, and, and another moral of the story has to also be leave your read in the read case. Um, and don't play with it while you're on risers. Yes, learn from us. <laughs> My shout out this episode is a book called Networking for Nerds. It's by Elena Levine, and the subtitle is Find Access and land, hidden game-changing career opportunities everywhere. Um, And I read this, oh, it's, I started it last year um, and I keep coming back to it because I get a lot from it. And it's basically um, the author, I believe she was um, like a biology major or some kind of science uh, in college. And she goes to get her PhD and realizes she doesn't want to teach college, and then what does she do with these degrees that she has in a very uh, specified field? And um, she starts to, you know, make connections with people outside her field, and eventually patches together a really fulfilling career writing about the, you know, interesting things happening in science. And um, I found that to be really fascinating uh, because. As we all know, a lot of what we do is dependent on the people that we know. Um, And a lot of times you could not be considered for an opportunity because nobody knows who you are. (laughs) And that can be really scary. 
Um, and networking is something that has a like a like leaves a bad taste in in your mouth because you're like, oh man, it se- seems like I'm being ingenuine and you know trying to um, find personal gain from friendships. But the way that she puts it all together is basically a lot like what we talk about with um, shine theory. And it's, you know, we all help each other to the top. And the more people you know, the more you can mutually help each other. So I got a lot out of this book. I haven't finished it yet, but I have used it in class before um, for finding creative ways to approach uh, networking in a way that works for you. Very cool. My shout out this week is Trello.com. There's also an app, Trello, um, that you can find in the App Store. Um, and this was introduced to me by a friend of the podcast, Laura Medisky. Hi, Laura. We love you. Shout out to Laura. And um, basically, she was telling me, you know, one day after I lost my paper to-do list. Um, oh, my gosh, Jackie. Who, who uses a t- paper to-do list anymore you got to get on Trello um and open me up yes exactly open me up to a world of organization um I am very much a list person and Trello allows me to have different types of lists for different types of things. Um, You can even have different um, boards, kind of like a bulletin board to put different lists on. Um, If you want a more basic list, you can do it. Basically, there's no end to the amount of detail you could go into conceivably, um, but it allows you to really compartmentalize things for different parts of your life, you know, family to-do list, professional to-do list, um, bill paying, whatnot. Um, And you can also collaborate. So um, I believe Laura's Woodwind Quintet all share a board and split responsibilities. That way, um, you and I have a doublery dish board. Um, So it's kind of like a Google Doc where multiple people can um, collaborate and edit, but it's in this um, to-do list task um, type of uh, format that I found really helpful. I now cannot live without my Trello app. So thank you, Laura. I was wrong. You are right. And everyone should check out (laughs) Trello.com to get themselves um, organized. This podcast is brought to you in part by Double Read Girl. Double Read Girl offers handmade reads and processed cane for oboe and English horn. All orders are custom made and a variety of options are available. Visit DoubleReadGirl.com for more info and let her know that you heard about Double Read Girl on Double Read Dish and get a discount on your order. I use Double Read Girl for my shaped English horn cane and I'm always really satisfied with the quality and the price. Um, You can find her at DoubleReadGirl.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by Bocal Majority, Bassoon, and Oboe Camp. Bocal Majority, Bassoon, and Oboe Camp is excited to announce the 2017 summer camp season is open for enrollment. Bocal Majority is a camp where double read students of all levels, beginner through advanced, can come learn how to make reads and play chamber music. Their 20 nationwide locations include Chicago, Virginia, California, Ohio, Las Vegas, Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio, and Abilene. 
Campers learn read making, participate in chamber music groups, attend master classes covering special topics and repertoire, and work with the best teachers in our field. From beginners to undergraduates, Vocal Majority has three camp divisions to suit students' needs. Vocal Majority is thrilled to feature Aaron Hannigan as their advanced camp oboe professor at the Dallas location this summer. I can't imagine a better learning opportunity than getting to hang out with other oboists and bassoonists who know the unique challenges of what we do in a friendly communal atmosphere like Vocal Majority offers. Make sure to visit www.vocalmajority.com for details and dates. Our guest for this episode is the one and only Aaron Hannigan, principal oboist of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, oboe teacher at Southern Methodist University, and um, also a dog rescuer and beautiful human being. And I know, Jackie, you have also uh, an experience with dog rescuing. Yeah, it was so cool to hear Erin talk about her experiences with Dog Rescue and the Foster Dog Chronicles and Artists for Animals, which our listeners will hear about um, more in her interview, Um, that I am a rescue dog mom, my Basset Hound buddy, who I love very much and you know very well, um, was a rescue dog. And so um, without people like Erin doing this wonderful work, we wouldn't have that important part of our um, family. And in fact, the listeners will hear... um, Um, many of her rescues in the background, um, barking away and, um, you know, getting their time on the podcast as well. So listen for that in the background. We wouldn't have it any other way. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, the amazing Erin Hannigan. Thank you so much for coming on. We're just so grateful for your time. Thank you for having me. Could we start off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a bit about your educational training and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. I, uh, I have a lot of people to thank in that, that little category, actually. Uh, I went to school at Oberlin College and studied with James Caldwell and, uh, Before that, I actually studied with Joe Turner in high school. He was the principal oboist of the Baltimore Symphony. And that was a really wonderful, you know, eye-opening time studying with him. And then um, after Oberlin, which was amazing, uh, so many of the students who who were there at the time um, in the oboe studio, you know, almost everybody has a, a really... Uh, really good career going as an oboist, um, performing or teaching. Um, and then I went to the Eastman School of Music for my master's degree, and I can't say enough good stuff about Richard Kilmer. Um, that just was a perfect combination, Oberlin and then Eastman with James Caldwell and Richard Kilmer. Erin, would you tell us a little bit about how you started playing the oboe, and did you have one special who encouraged you uh, to make music your profession? I, um, I started when I was really young. I was in third grade. Um, I was actually right before third grade, so I was seven. And 
um, my parents were very supportive of studying music. Um, they both played for fun, you know, in high school and, and wanted me to share in that same, that same, uh, enjoyable high school activity. So I picked it up and studied with a teacher named Sherry Stroman, who uh, was a local woodwind teacher. She taught, you know, pretty much everything, saxophone, flute, oboe. And, uh, I just, it, it just was right from the very start. It just felt right. And, um, I knew by the time I was in seventh grade that I wanted to make a living playing the oboe. I didn't know what that meant, but uh, I knew I wanted to do it as a career. As far as, you know, encouragement, I I would say, you know, there was a lot of eye-opening in the opposite direction, actually. Um, my teacher in high school, Joe Turner, said to me at one point, you know, if you're planning on going in, into music ask yourself this question first, is there anything that you love as much? And if there is, you should do that other thing. Because uh, at the time, I was really, you know, kind of taken aback. I was, you know, thinking, how could he say that? You know, he has a successful career. How could he say that? But honestly, um, that's something I find myself saying to students now, high school students, because you have to have that drive because you're going to get you're going to get knocked on your butt. I don't care who you are. You're going to get knocked on your butt many, many, many times. And if you don't love it, um, there's nothing to push you through those times. And um, you have to take this, this, uh, this journey, this lifelong journey that never ends, and you have to continue with it. I think when you're, you're that age in high school, I, I see my current high school students thinking this way a little bit I, I I at least I think they do that you know once they're my age it's it's all easy all the hard work is done but really the hard work just continues the entire journey so what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself at that time knowing what you know now well that's a funny question because I feel like I've had to really, it, I've had to really make that a very, a very recent question with a very specific target because of, you know, orchestras are, are going on strike. Um, our business is changing. And, you know, so when I talk to my students, I want to make sure they know that not only do they have to be really excellent players, and I mean really excellent players um, in order to work in this business. And we're not talking about getting an orchestral job. I mean, that's that's one target of success. I'm talking about making a living playing your instrument because that to me is the definition of success. So not only do they have to be really excellent, they also have to advocate for what we do. And the main way I, I think students need to do that is uh, to get out into the community and to make a difference. And, you know, let's, I sort of live that um, as best I can. So I like to think that I'm, I'm passing that on to my students. But, you know, when, when um, we had several orchestras go on strike in one week, we had Fort Worth, we had Pittsburgh, we had Philadelphia. I talked to each of my students individually and I said, what are you going to do about this? 
and they they look at me blankly, you know, because at that age you're you're young. Well, what am I going to do about this? Uh, nothing. Um, the answer is you're going to change the way you look at this career, and you're gonna you're gonna be the difference. You're going to get out into the community, and you're going to show what it is that you do, and you're going to show what what difference you can make with this gift you have. So that's a very long-winded answer, but I feel it's important right now because I think a lot of us feel, a lot of students feel victim um, to our current state of things when in reality they should feel uh, a little bit empowered because it's a time of change and not necessarily a bad one. As a passionate dog mom to a rescue basset hound buddy. Uh, I noticed and admired the work that you've done volunteering for Operation Kindness, which is a no-kill animal shelter in North Texas, and also Artists for Animals, which is the nonprofit that you founded, as well as the Foster Dog Chronicles. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about um, those projects and what inspired you to embark on them. Sure. Well, um, I, I, I'm very passionate about rescue animals and here in, in Texas, the, the state of things is really rough. You know, we have so many strays and, and it's just a really difficult situation. And these animals are all wonderful. Um, but I, I do find that a lot of times people want, want to adopt from breeders because they think, um, rescue animals are damaged goods. So, We'll start off with, off with Foster Dog Chronicles. So uh, we started fostering about five years ago, maybe six, because some of our fosters are, our past fosters are now turning five. Um, we've fostered around 160, 170 animals over the course of that time. Um, and, you know, not only did I want to give those animals a place to to recover a place to flourish a place to grow i wanted to show the world how amazing they are and i would i used to do that on my own personal facebook page but of course i have a lot of musician friends probably many of whom aren't animal fans and i thought you know i'm i'm asking a lot putting this on my professional page so i decided to branch off with foster dog chronicles now the main point of foster dog chronicles is to show the world these, you know, amazing um, animals. Because litter after litter after litter, they're just, the moms are perfect, the puppies are perfect, the puppies are raised in an environment where I don't care what breeder you go to, you are not going to adopt a more socialized puppy because we spend a ton of time with each and every one of those pups. Um, then every every dog we foster is an Operation Kindness animal. So um, Operation Kindness is a fantastic place. I'm also on the board of Operation Kindness, so I'm, I'm very deeply entrenched with, with that place. They rescue, uh, rehab, uh, help recover about um, 5,000 animals per year which is amazing for, you know, a fairly small shelter. They are um, the original no-kill shelter here in North Texas, and really they're the only one. A lot of times they take um, 
you know, animals who are out of time. Um, unfortunately, that happens a lot here. Shelters are always full. They take animals that have run out of time, meaning they're about to be euthanized simply for space, and they give them uh, a space at Operation Kindness, which gives them, you know, basically any time any animal walks through the door of, at Operation Kindness, they're safe forever. So that's why I'm, I'm really passionate and really into supporting them because I feel their mission is incredible. They, they do so much to um, always have a full shelter, and then uh, their foster system has a, basically 150 animals in it at any given time. So that's pretty impressive. Then, um, you know, part of this outreach concept that I have, get out in the community and make a difference. Whatever your passion is, get out there as an artist and make a difference. Um, I started a nonprofit with a photographer partner named Teresa Berg called Artists for Animals. Now, Artists for Animals is um, basically a group of artists who come together who want to use their passion to raise money for rescue animals. So every year, for instance, we do a concert called the Concert for Kindness. This year it's in March. And last year we raised, just through a, an hour-long concert, um, classical music concert, chamber music partnered with photography and a silent auction. I'll get into more into that in a second. Um, we raised $54,000, which went to Operation Kindness. The year before that, we raised about uh, $28,000, which purchased an adoption vehicle for Operation Kindness. We give several performances throughout the year. Um, sometimes they're benefits for artists, for animals, since we do have bills to pay. And then sometimes it's a benefit for another rescue. Um, we're to the point now where we're able to start making some small grants to some local rescues, which is a wonderful thing because a little bit of money can make a big difference to a rescue organization, save more lives. So um, a lot of Dallas Symphony players have taken part in Artists for Animals and will again this year. This year, we also have the Avant Chamber Ballet as part of our performance. We involve students. The SMU Oboe Studio has been involved for probably six years now, as long as we've been going. Um, I also involve my high school kids. And I take a rescue animal. I should say we take a rescue animal because it's it's a team of us um, to the Booker T. Washington High School for Visual and wait, Booker T. Washington High School for Performing and Visual Arts. Uh, we take a dog or a cat from Operation Kindness to Booker T. High School every week to their advanced um, placement life drawing class. And they draw, paint, sculpt those animals. And then that artwork um, is what goes into our silent auction. And, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of good that comes from that. You know, we're teaching the next generation about rescue animals. There's not one kid in that high school class that's going to adopt from a breeder. And then also we're teaching young artists the, the power that they hold to give back to the community. Uh, for, you know, we walk in that first day and we say to them, we're artists too. And you don't know the power you have with your unique way of giving back. And you see the light bulb goes on because so much time as artists, we spend by ourselves in a little room, you know, working on our, our 
art is a very solitary pursuit. And the moment you realize that you can you can go out with with this this passion you have and you can make an impact it, it's it's empowering and we we want young artists again looking to classical music as um an example right now i want my students i want my young artists to to realize that they can go out there and make an impact and it's what we're doing is not about us uh, my career, it's not about me. Um, it's about what I can do with, you know, with this, this gift I have, what difference can I make? Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important, um, perspective to know that you can take your gifts and turn it into something that the world really needs and could benefit from. And it's really inspiring to look at the videos on the Foster Dog Chronicles and look at what you're doing in Dallas and, um, you know, actually doing what we all should be doing. So thank you for that. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about one of the other incredible things that you do, which is you're the principal oboist of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. Can you talk a bit about how you prepare for weekly rehearsals and concerts uh, playing principal oboe with the major American symphony? Sure. Well, the preparation starts way back, you know, every year in the summer. So we have a good amount of time off in the summer. Um, we are, we're off from basically the beginning of July through the end of August. So that's when I, I really learn a good bit of the music. I listen to some of the new stuff. I review some of the stuff, you know, that we've done before. Um, and then, you know, of course, being an oboist, my week in and week out schedule is, is so focused around reads. Um, our schedule every week, this is a typical subscription week. So we go into rehearsals Tuesdays, some days it's a, some weeks it's a double. So we'll have a 10 to 12, 30, two to four, uh, rehearsal on that day. And then Wednesday's the same thing. And then Thursday morning rehearsal, and then we have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday concerts, which um, that's a lot, actually, for a major American orchestra. A lot of places don't do four anymore, but we're still selling them, so we're still doing four. Uh, so that leaves Monday to, you know, do some last-minute reviewing of, of um, music. I also teach my SMU kids on Monday, and uh, Sunday night, Monday, um, I'm doing some, some finishing up of reads. So I have what I need for the week. So that's, that's my basic schedule. Um, it is a lot because of course, every single week it's an, it's a brand new program. Um, and those pops weeks, you know, uh, I actually kind of look forward to those cause that's a chance to get my feet underneath me again and catch up a little bit. Uh, but it's definitely a busy schedule, but you know, one that I, I really, um, enjoy. I, I really like getting, going through, um, a different program every single week. You also recently commissioned a new work by Jeremy Gill called Serenata Concertante. What was the commissioning experience like, and how did you prepare for the performance, which you did with the Dallas Symphony? It, it's such a funny story. It just, the way things work out is um, 
this is an example of, of that. Um, I commissioned, I've wanted to do that for a long time. We have something called the Grant for Principal Musicians, which gives each principal musician in the Dallas Symphony uh, play money. So, you know, I've made three CDs with that money. I've bought some equipment with that money. Um, and I have always wanted to commission a piece. So I uh, thought about it for a good long time. I wanted to really make the right choice in composer, someone who would, you know, consider me as a player, um, someone who I could work with um, and not just sort of be a victim to whatever was written. So uh, I went to school with Jeremy Gill, and I, I approached him about writing a piece, writing an oboe concerto, uh, except for I didn't want it to be called oboe concerto because we have enough of those. And he, <laughs> he was wonderful. He just from the start, he said, OK, what are your favorite pieces? OK, and then what are the pieces you don't like so much? OK, so then um, I'm going to start working on this. I hope to have the first section to you by such and such date. And then, you know, it all came together that way. And um, the piece that I got is is absolutely wonderful. And I think my favorite thing about it is that um, I didn't, I don't think I knew this when he first sent it to me, but he had to write a letter um, for some grant proposal. And I had to, I had to, I think, look it over or give a copy of it to Dallas Symphony, something like that. Anyway, it said in there that, he considered me as a player, but he also considered me as a person and what I do with my life, you know, um, in music and outside of music. So, you know, rescue dogs, in other words. Uh, and he said it was a very bright, cheerful, uh, lighthearted piece, whereas uh, a lot of his music is darker. So he really did consider me as a player, me as a person. And that was, you know, uh, for me then, it made it very clear that I just made such the right choice in going with Jeremy. And so he sent this great piece and, um, you know, the next step is for the music director to hear it, to make sure that it's, you know, something that we can present to the Dallas audiences just because you commission it doesn't mean you get to perform it. So, um, he did a piano reduction and we, we played it, for the music director, for Jat von Sweden and a couple other other friends of his or um, colleagues of his. And the moment I stopped playing, they just they just went nuts. And it was supposed to have been performed on kind of a side series called Remix, which is more focused on contemporary music. But the moment he heard it, he said, this has to go on the main series. It, it means putting it off a year because the main series is is scheduled way ahead of time. But it has to go on the main series, and I want to conduct it. So that was really, you know, such a gift, because as I said, it was supposed to go on a side series with um, a different conductor. We never uh, have our music director for that remix series. But um, thankfully, he heard it, and he just ran with it. And um, he was fantastic, of course, the week of. It just ended up being a, a real successful premiere, which I'm I'm glad about, and the, the orchestra really liked it. 
you never know. You know, I guess I didn't know when I com commissioned it how vulnerable you feel when you are bringing this new piece to the world. Um, but the Dallas audiences really loved it, as did um, the, the, the performers in the DSO. Uh, we actually recorded it last spring. That's something that's, that's still under wraps somewhat with um, the Boston Modern Orchestra Project. So hopefully this spring, it'll come out on a disc of uh, all Jeremy's music. Hopefully this spring it'll come out. I think about all these activities that you've described, your philanthropy, your teaching, and your performing, and I wonder how you go about self-care and how you balance work and life as a person. Well, that's, that's something I probably need to be better at, honestly. <laughs> um, I... I have a huge list of things on my plate at any given moment and the oboe cannot budge from its spot. You know, it's, it's, it's always number one on that list. And if it's not, it shows. So, you know, um, there are many things on that list that cannot be, um, scooted down. So, you know, I, I do my best to take good care of myself because if you're completely drained, you have nothing left to, to give for any of those other important things. Um, I'm very into um, physical fitness. I feel like that's that has to be a priority. And then also, um, you know, being healthy, on, healthy habits on top of that, eating well. Um, I think just, you know, taking care of yourself. Some weeks I'm better at it than others, but just sort of a general level of care, keeping yourself active, um, and when you have any question about, you know, should I really spend this next half an hour to an hour working out? Well, if you're not going to take care of yourself, then uh, you're not going to be able to take care of anybody else. So I try to remember that and try to keep, keep you know, all that stuff a priority. But like I said, <clears throat> I could be better. What repertoire or resources stick out in your mind as great teaching tools in your studio at SMU? Well, I, I feel like I got so much out of my path um, when I was at Oberlin and then into Eastman that I tend to focus on the same thing. You know, we start with the Barrett book. Um, I will say that because the world has changed, because, you know, uh, the world is always evolving. I introduced things earlier, you know, like kids have to be able to play the, you know, the Strauss concerto now at a very young age. I didn't start working on that until I was in grad school. But, you know, I always have my students play that on one of their juries or at least, you know, a movement per jury um, in undergrad. And, of course, there are many concertos that fit on that same kind of basic list. Of course, the Mozart concerto. I mean, my, my high school kids are, are working on the Mozart concerto. The Mozart quartet. Um, we also work on Fairling. And we also work on excerpts quite a bit. I mean, that's, uh, that's such a focus, um, even from, I'd say, sophomore year on. Freshman year is pretty much reserved for the Barrett book. But then we start working excerpts in already starting sophomore year. And that's younger than I would have done as a teacher, you know, uh, 10 years ago. 
and I didn't work on excerpts other than for um, summer festivals. When I was at Oberlin, we we just didn't we didn't do that. So you know, I'd say it's it's a it's very similar to what I did at Oberlin and Eastman, except for with consideration for the fact that we've evolved and things have to happen earlier now. One of the things we always like to ask our guests on Double Read Dish is about um, these experiences that every musician has with, um, be it performance anxiety or imposter syndrome. And we wondered if you have any hints for our listeners or for us of how you have gone about approaching those things in your own career. Well, I mean, it's a very real thing. And I see it, you know, in my students and I feel it still myself. It doesn't go away. Um, that goes under the category of your lifelong, you know, progress with within this career. You still get nervous. I was still nervous before going out and, and playing the gill. Um, and if I, you know, do something next year, I'm going to, I'm going to fight that same feeling, but you know, maybe actually fight is the, the word that um, I want to bring up because I think the more you accept it, the better you feel. So it's not fighting nervousness. It's actually just, you know, you're going to feel that way. So embrace it. Just, you know, it is what it is. So just embrace it and realize it's there and then do, do your best with it. Now, sometimes it's debilitating and, uh, you know, then it's, it's a deeper conversation and there are definitely things that you know, you can do for that. Um, but I still feel it. And I, I think I probably always will that, that spike of adrenaline. Um, there was a point in time, I mean, if we're being completely honest, which I think we have to be, uh, since students will listen to this, but there was a point in time when I did use, um, beta blockers and I was one of those people who was firmly against it. And then, you know, I started taking orchestral auditions and I realized, first of all, so many people were taking them. Second of all, you know, that spike, if you have that spike of adrenaline, if you have three or four rounds of an audition, which does happen, uh, at least it happened to me in one day by the fourth time you're worn out. I mean, your, your nervous system is completely worn out. So getting getting yourself up there again to that place that you need to be to really, you know, stay focused, um, it can't happen. Anyway, so I did take them for a little while uh, during all that period of time when I was auditioning. And what it did was it kind of reset my physical expectations. So, you know, I no longer got the shaking. I no longer got some of the, the more difficult... Um, nervous reactions they they didn't happen because you know uh, beta blockers actually takes that away so it reset those expectations it reset the my body's response so I didn't need to take them anymore because my body just didn't go that way um I don't know if that's helpful to anyone or not but you know when I have students who really struggle I certainly don't try to talk them out of it out of taking them. It, I just feel like in this world, um, you do what you have to do to be able to go out and, and do your best. And, uh, you know, um, I could sit here and tell you I'm, I'm firmly against it and you should just be a stronger person, but 
you know, it's, it's a hard world out there and it's a, it's a tough world, uh, performance wise. We all know how hard it is to get a job. So whatever you need to do. One of the questions that I've been itching to ask you is <laughs> about your approach to read making. And I wonder if you could, uh, describe your philosophy to read making, um, if you're willing to share routines and habits and the advice that you would give us on read making. Oh boy. Well, <laughs> um, hmm, that's there. It's such a big mountain, isn't it? Um, well, I mean, I'd say, I'll tell you one thing I, I feel strongly about, at least from a student standpoint. Um, I always teach my students um, one, my way, my way of making reads. And I want them to stick with that for the first, you know, two to three years here at um, SMU. Now, it's not because I think, you know, it's my way or the highway. It's actually more that I always want them to have a home base. So, you know, first two to three years, we use the same equipment. We we maybe vary on gouging machine. If their gouging machine's working, I'm perfectly happy to to go along with that. We we do not vary on shaper tip. Um, so everybody's using the same equipment. We're using the same staples. We're using all of the same stuff. So that way, when they do start to branch out with with some more kind of in individualized needs in the read making, when they get a little bit more advanced. Um, they always have a home base. They always know, okay, well, A plus B equals C. I know that. So, you know, even though right now I'm, I'm changing up the equipment, I know I can go back to my home base at any time. And I feel it's really important to have that home base. So I try to teach that to my, to my students. Um, as far as my, my, uh, read making habits, um, Honestly, I try to keep it as simple as I can. I know some people get very involved in knife sharpening and it can take a huge chunk of time and uh, I don't have a huge chunk of time for knife sharpening. So my approach is, is very simple. It works, but it is very simple. Um, I feel like, you know, my reads have evolved. So um, I'm definitely open to new things. But when I do introduce something new I only introduce one thing and uh, nothing else changes so you know if I get some new staples in the mail and I get a new shaper tip in the mail only one thing is going to change and then I'll consider the other thing a little bit later so always you know approaching read making with home base in mind because um, things can spiral off that track so quickly and finding your way back can be so difficult and with the ever moving target of the perfect gouging machine, um, you know, we need to know what's not working when something's not working. We need to be able to just say it's exactly this. And the only way you can do that is if you're going from this, this, um, place of a home base. Do you have any past performances that stick out in your mind as, um, your favorite or fond memories that you reflect upon? Yeah, um, I would say when I did the Strauss Concerto here with Dallas, um, Douglas Boyd was conducting. Of course, he's an oboist, and it just was 
I felt like he he understood every every gesture, every breath. I mean, that was really great. We've had some incredible performances with our music director here in Dallas, and paring it down to just one is tough. But um, when we performed in the Concert Cabal, which he was the concert master of the Concert Cabal Orchestra, so it was kind of a coming home for him. Um, that combined with the magic of the place uh, and the fact that we were on a European tour, um, that was that performance was just absolutely. It just stands apart in its own category. Um, and then, uh, you know, performing uh, the Gill is another real standout in my mind. That was um, that was something. Bringing this piece out for the first time. It's also uh, for people who haven't heard it, it's all in one movement, but in the middle of the piece is literally, this is not an exaggeration, a page and a half cadenza. And the whole orchestra just sits there mm. kind of a la Goosen's concerto, but without any um, interaction from the orchestra. Um, that was, I mean, it, it, to see the audience's response to that, I mean, you're standing up there playing a concerto and all of a sudden you're, you're by yourself for about, about a solid minute, which doesn't sound long probably to the, the average person, but you know, you're standing up there with an oboe in your hands doing acrobats, acrobatics in front of uh, a, a, a packed concert hall. It's uh, memorable. <laughs> so that was definitely a, a standout performance in my mind. Aaron, with all of the um, performing that you do, do you have a warm-up habit and scale system that you use consistently? You know, um, I don't. I This is going to sound strange. I will play the first couple pages of the Vado Makeum, especially if I'm, you know, I've taken a couple days off and I, I need to get back in. Or the Fairling studies. I find Fairling to be my lifelong you know, kind of warm up partner, but I also want to know that I can get the oboe out at any time and not feel that I have to warm up in order to uh, play well. Um, so there are times I will start out a practice session with Fairling or with some slow, even, um, just sort of getting the air moving scales. But there are a lot of times when I'll just get the oboe out and just start playing. So I won't say that I have a real system for warming up. Now my students, I do expect them to have a real system. I expect them, you know, depending on their the stage of the game, I expect them to do long tones at the start of every single practice session. I expect them to do scales. I expect them to do all of those things that, you know, remind them of the important things uh, the air embouchure balance, the air, just the air flow in general. Starting out practice sessions that way for students, I think, is hugely important. When you consider the entirety of the oboe repertoire, this can be solo music, chamber music, um, or orchestral, what are some of your all-time favorite pieces to play? Oh, oh boy. Um <laughs> I love the Strauss Concerto. Um, hmm. I 
really love um, Shostakovich solos. I mean, just love them. Um, I also love repertoire, chamber orchestra repertoire, which we don't get to do very often, but I love it anyway. Um, I love the Bach Oboe de Moore Concerto. Um, that's probably at the top of my list, quite honestly. I did that with Dallas a couple years ago with Jaap van Sweden and really just, I just love that piece. Um, hmm. Beethoven, I mean, Beethoven 3, it's just, it's incredible. Uh, Schubert, great. Symphony, love playing that. I will never get tired of playing that. Um, there's just so much. Uh, but I'd say those are probably the highlights. Anything, anything by Bach doesn't matter what it is where or to to whom do you look for inspiration well um this has a couple different facets to it as far as other musicians i mean richard kilmer is my lifelong mentor um that relationship that um teacher student relationship it has evolved and you know, it, it's not what it was, of course, when I was in grad school, but I still look to him for inspiration, not just in music, but in life. Um, he has come to as many performances of mine as he's been able to. Uh, he came to two of three Gill performances last year. He came to my Strauss concerto performance. Um, he's just he's just a lifelong mentor, a lifelong teacher. Um, as far as other oboists, uh, you know, there are so many. I view what Alex Klein has done um, over his career as being really inspirational. Um, you know, he, he's had struggles with focal dystonia, and he's overcome them to come back and win the Chicago Symphony job twice. Who does that? <laughs> uh, just truly an inspirational person and in between of course you know he did a lot of really important work in between his his two um times with the chicago symphony you, you have to you have to honor that and he was a past teacher as well i actually studied with him for a semester at oberlin um james caldwell was on sabbatical so i feel lucky to have had that that time with him um also you know I think people think what I do in music and what I do with the animals, people probably think of those as being two very different things. But honestly, I get so much life inspiration from working with the animals. They teach me so much that directly is linked to what I do in music and what I put out there you know, as far as what people are hearing, um, you know, all those things that, that, that make you a musician, all those things that, that we do as humans that make it that computers will never take over our jobs. Um, all those human emotions, um, the animals, the, the work, the, um, I think just also making a difference, um, Again, this is another angle of importance here, but taking what I do, taking that hard work that can sometimes be tedious, that hard oboe work, um, and making it about something outside myself, 
um, that is a huge source of inspiration for me. Um, taking it and making a difference, making an impact uh, on those days, you know, when playing an orchestra is, is hard, and it is, on those days that feel a little tedious, um, and there will be those, um, if you take your, your art and you apply it to something uh, and make, make a real difference, it will inspire you. There's purpose. Well, this interview has been so inspiring for, um, I hope Galit won't mind for me speaking for the both of us, and we cannot thank you enough for um, giving us and our listeners your precious time. When they inevitably want to follow up with you, where can they find you on the internet? I do have a website, erinhannigan.com, although I think it's probably sadly uh, outdated, but uh, my contact info is there. Also, there's the Foster Dog Chronicles, and of course, I'm on Facebook, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions anybody may have. I'm not unreachable. I'm completely reachable. Whether you have questions about animals, questions about artists for animals, or questions about, of course, the oboe. Perfect, and we'll link to all of those in the description of the episode for our listeners. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was such an inspiring interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And be sure to tune in next month. We have a special theme for February. It's going to be Mentor Month. And we are, yay! (laughs) And we are going to interview um, both of our teachers that we completed our doctorates with. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and also rate and review. That'll help more people get to know about Double Read Dish. And also check out our brand new website, www.doublereaddish.com. And you can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, You can also go to our SoundCloud page. We're everywhere. Um, Also feel free to send us an email at doublereaddish at gmail.com. We love getting your guys' comments and hearing from you. It's the highlight whenever we get one of those messages. So thank you to our sponsors and thank you for listening.